People who teach now Orthodox high schools generally assume that Talmud should be the most important part of the Judaic studies curriculum. Why is Talmud so important? Because Talmud, or Gemara, as it's more generally called, is the central pillar of Torah study, the most important element in becoming a knowledgeable and literate Jew. All other subjects within Jewish studies, Chumash, Nach, Halacha, Midrash, Jewish philosophy, Kabbalah, you name it, all of them are subservient to the study of Gemara. In fact, the ultimate opportunity for communion with Hashem comes via Talmud study above all. That is why it is so important, and that is why it is so strongly emphasized. I think that the large majority of yeshiva high schools believe this to be true, and they structure their curriculum with these ideas in mind. Today I want to open up the possibility that in doing this, perhaps, just perhaps, our high schools are making a very big mistake. My name is Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Today's podcast is an opening to a longer discussion that I hope to continue over the next few episodes. To that end, I'm not proposing any solutions today. I'm not even necessarily going to say that our educational program or programs are mistaken. Instead, I hope to create a discussion about the relative importance of Gemara in our curricula, both in high schools and in yeshivot. To that end, I hope that people will comment and further the discussion, both for the sake of my future episodes, and so that if there are problems, we can affect change in our schools. The first step is seeing if, the way we've always done it, is still valid. Please write to me. I want to hear from you what you think about this. Scott at JewishCoffeeHouse.com. That's Scott at JewishCoffeeHouse.com. But before we begin, I want to make a personal request for a wonderful organization the Gift of Life Marrow Registry. There are many organizations that do phenomenal work out there, but rarely is there an organization that has such a direct effect on saving lives, and that's exactly what Gift of Life is. They test individuals to see if they're a genetic match with someone suffering from blood cancer. If so, that person, a life-saving donor, can provide stem cells and literally save someone's life. I strongly recommend going to the Gift of Life website at giftoflife.org and seeing some of the incredible work that they do. Make sure you read the story about how they were founded. It will give you chills. I have a friend, Molly Livingstone, who's worked with me on podcasts, including The Dating Zone with Mickey Lavenpel. Her day job, though, is working for Gift of Life. She explained to me that in advance of the Jerusalem Marathon, Gift of Life has a campaign to raise $30,000. You see, every time Gift of Life tests someone with a cheek swab kit, it costs $60 to test that swab. As Molly put it, they could have a million people willing to be tested, but without $60 per kit, there's no way to do anything about it. With $30,000, Gift of Life can test an additional 500 people. For someone dying of leukemia, for example, that's 500 additional chances to live. So please help Gift of Life in this campaign. Go to causematch.com and search for Gift of Life, Or you can find the link to their donation page at the bottom of this podcast at either jewishcoffeehouse.com or on SoundCloud. Please help Gift of Life make this campaign a success. It's a cause that means a lot to me, and I'm sure will mean a lot to you. 
but it means everything to people suffering from cancer and their families. Thanks. Now, the topic of today's Orthodox conundrum was inspired by a February 5th Facebook post by my friend and fellow Ramape Shemesh resident, Shoshana Keats Jaskol. She is someone who is truly working to make positive change in the Jewish world, and she wrote the following. I'm quoting. I want my daughters to go to a school where they will be taught Talmud. People ask why it's so important to me. We have our kids learn science and math, wars and events, algorithms and coding they'll likely never use. Yet we keep them from the Gemara that has far more impact on our daily lives than any equation. Being ignorant of Talmud is being ignorant of Judaism. The stories, the arguments, the history, and yes, the laws our people determined and kept for thousands of years are vital learning to be a Jew, religious or not. It is a treasure trove of stories, humanity, history, divinity, debate, and law. Keeping Jews ignorant of that is wrong, and it's a tremendous detriment to them as they get older, especially if they are religious, and most especially if they live in Israel, where Jewish law is entwined with our daily lives and life cycle events. With so much institutional and communal life being intertwined with interpretations of Jewish law, we simply cannot afford to be ignorant any longer. We all need to be educated, we all need to be speaking the same language, and we all need to work together towards the betterment of our entire community, based on modern values and Jewish heritage. Now, I certainly don't disagree with her idea of teaching girls Gemara. My daughter Meira is currently learning Gemara in Nishmat. In fact, last night, she and I had a text going back and forth about what extra Gemara she should learn. We're discussing whether she should learn Chagiga, learn Tanit, learn Rosh Hashanah. I certainly am in favor of teaching girls Gemara. But my reaction to Shoshana's post was not exactly that. The question I had upon reading this piece wasn't so much why we don't teach many girls Gemara. In fact, it actually raised the opposite question in my mind. Not whether we should include girls in the Gemara curriculum, but whether we're mistaken in teaching boys so much Gemara. So let me explain by taking a step back. There's an assumption implicit in Shoshana's post, and it's an assumption with which I largely agree, that in order to be a serious Torah learner, in order to be a serious Jew, you need to be conversant in Gemara. And to a great extent, I accept this idea. Certainly, as I mentioned a moment ago, Talmud is the central pillar of Jewish thought. Rav Steinzaltz, in his book, The Essential Talmud, writes, If the Bible is the cornerstone of Judaism, then the Talmud is the central pillar, soaring up from the foundations and supporting the entire spiritual and intellectual edifice. In many ways, the Talmud is the most important book in Jewish culture, the backbone of creativity and of national life. No other work has had a comparable influence on the theory and practice of Jewish life, shaping spiritual content and serving as a guide to conduct. The Jewish people have always been keenly aware that their continued survival and development depend on study of the Talmud, and those hostile to Judaism have also been cognizant of this fact. The book was reviled, slandered, and consigned to the flames countless times in the Middle Ages, and has been subjected to similar indignities in the recent past as well. At times, Talmudic study has been prohibited because it was abundantly clear that a Jewish society that ceased to study this work had no real hope of survival. And even just yesterday, 24 hours ago, a video was going around with Louis Farrakhan casting aspersions upon the Talmud, saying his vile anti-Semitic claims about what Talmud study does to Jews 
and threw them to the world. So what Ralph Steinsaltz writes is extraordinarily contemporary and absolutely true. I personally spent 11 years as the co-Rosh Yeshiva of a post-high school program in Israel that was predicated upon teaching Gemara skills. I've never tried to de-emphasize Gemara. In fact, I used to criticize those yeshivot that did water the curriculum down and didn't have so much Gemara. And there's a lot to be said for this point of view. It's the traditional viewpoint. It makes sense. It's something which I've always believed and still believe. Let me read an email from a good friend and a real mentor of mine who wrote to me privately in response to this question about whether we have too much Gemara in high schools. He says, It is abundantly clear to me that modern Orthodox educational systems in Chutzlaretz are not emphasizing Gemara nearly enough. I have some arguments against de-emphasizing Gemara right now and will probably come up with more if I ruminate on it. The main reason we learn Gemara is not for the information. It's to learn and assimilate a method of critical thinking. Not just a method of critical thinking, the method of critical thinking. There are often many reasonable answers to serious questions of halacha or ashkafa. How do we determine which one is right? That is what Shaklavataria of Gemara is all about. The Gemara, Rishonim, and Achronim raise questions and weigh various options in order to arrive at conclusions, both abstract and practical. And it is the method they employ to accept or reject that we must assimilate in order to develop the power of judgment that gives us the ability to provide answers to the questions, big and little, that face us as Jews. Gemara is a difficult discipline to master. The purely linguistic and technical sides of it should be mastered when the child is at a stage when he learns languages best. An intelligent kid should be close to being able to make a laning by himself by ninth grade. Many Haredi schools succeeded this. I'm not opening the Pandora's box of which system is better. I recognize that there are serious problems in the Haredi system. But I don't see how anyone can deny the fact that Gemara study is on a significantly higher level there. It's an attainable goal, but it requires an investment in classroom time. De-emphasizing Gemara is also trivializing Torah. It robs it of its depth. It makes it a free-for-all in which any opinion which is articulated reasonably can become a practical possibility. A system which does not impress upon the student the rigorous standard that Talmudic thought demands that opinions meet in order to be accepted will produce students who do not take halacha seriously enough. Rav Yashiv and his colleagues on the Rabbanut Beitin used to fast when they were faced with an aguna problem they couldn't solve. They recognized that Torah knowledge is a gift from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The minimal requirement to attain it is hard work. And the minimal amount of hard work necessary is that required to be at home in the Yama Talmud. No shortcuts. Side point. The Talmudic method is the only method by which we can perfect our power of judgment in any area of Torah. You cannot weigh the relative merits of Rashbam versus Ramban on Chumash without the standards of Talmudic argumentation. Otherwise, you're just a dilettante, probably without realizing it. By the way, I'm pretty sure Nechama Leibowitz knew how to learn Gemara. As another corollary to this, it is hard for me to imagine men having a passion for learning without having studied Gemara. More than anything else, it engenders a thirst for arriving at the truth. From what I hear, Rav Soloveitchik Zatzal was acutely aware of this. Now, this email I just read expresses a position with which, again, I largely identify. So in that case, given everything I've just said for the past 10 minutes, why am I even raising the question? Why would I even question whether we're teaching Gemara properly and there's even a possibility of too much in our high schools? Here's a competing email 
I received from someone with the exact opposite point of view, another friend of mine. He writes, Learning Gemara for high school boys and younger in today's day and age is probably the single most damaging thing to their religious life. I'm trying to figure out a way to say how strongly I feel about this. And the chapters they teach are absolutely stupid and make matters worse. I'm sure he does not mean that the chapters are stupid in themselves. He means that it's stupid that they choose these chapters. He writes, 150 years ago, when you were living in abject poverty, and the choice was to study 300 pages of esoterica and what happened when my donkey got lost, and then I could get into an elite yeshiva and then marry a rich girl, fine, I'll do it. But in today's world, Facebook, Instagram, and every other possible fun thing competing with two men grabbing a talit, please. Ashkenazic traditionalism has screwed so much up. I once proposed the possibility that we should make sure they learn without having to take a bargut on the subject. And the Rosh Yeshiva of my son's Yeshiva basically laughed. He said no way would the boys even consider sitting and learning under those conditions. No one is teaching how to learn, except for a few select post-high school Yeshiva for English speakers. Teach the kids the code of Gemara. Have them comfortable with picking any Gemara up anywhere, and they could work it out. Forcing down their throats all of the bavas, because that's real Gemara, and that's what we always did, that's tradition, give me a break. Ashkenazim screwed this up. It's where and why Hasidut developed, and you see clearly that it's happening today, why there's so many Karbach Minyanim, even in the best Hezer Yeshivot, because we basically made it they could only be a part of the really important class if you can learn Torah. But the kids are rejecting this completely. More Mechinot, fewer kids sticking with Hezer through the end, in an environment where we have more Yeshivot Hezer than ever. We have driven them all away from learning because we forced them to learn things that were uninteresting, boring, hard, and it doesn't have to be this way. They could even learn fluff, stories, legends, etc. End quote. Well, that's pretty strong stuff he's saying. But is he wrong? Obviously, this person who is a dedicated, religious, knowledgeable Jew is very upset about the way things have been taught. He's not coming from a place of disinterest or being upset at Judaism, he's coming from a place of dedicated Torah life, and still he's upset about this. But why would someone have such a negative view of the Gemara? Or particularly, I should say, Gemara learning as it's currently taught, and especially at the high school level. So I'm not going to go through all of the issues, but I would like to articulate five particular issues. The first is the main point that he seems to be saying, namely, that the Gemara we often teach is boring. By teaching students boring Gemara, and I don't mean on a spiritual level, I'm talking about for a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old who also has Facebook and who also has Twitter, who also has Instagram, who can watch anything he wants on his phone, for him to be interested in the topics that we teach in Gemara when it's so esoteric, when discussions can go on for pages and pages without resolution, this might be an issue of the way that we teach it, but often it's a problem of the content and the topics themselves. Is that what he thinks Judaism is? Admittedly, in my yeshiva, we used to note that kids will sit for hours on a meaningless Sudoku puzzle. So it's not about the content. It's about the challenge. And there's truth to that. But there's also truth to the fact that many students find Gemara, as it's taught, very boring. A second issue. Gemara can only be learned properly by true immersion. It's a foreign language. It's Aramaic. It's ancient Aramaic. 
if it's not given the proper immersion, if people don't have the time to learn Gemara as they should, if, as is true in many, if not most, of the modern Orthodox high schools in America, Gemara is given an hour, an hour and a half a day, something like that, by giving it so little time, by not allowing for true immersion in it, it becomes foreign, pointless, and many would say a complete waste of time. If you're going to do it, then have three hours a day, four hours a day, and really let them swim in the Sea of Talmud. If you're not going to do that, you may as well not do it at all, because all you're teaching them is how much they hate it and how boring it is, and they don't understand it one bit. What have they possibly gotten out of it? A third point, and I see this with my own kids. Sometimes they're simply not intellectually mature enough to understand Gemara at a certain age. Two nights ago, I was learning Gemara with my 14-year-old. And it wasn't a particularly difficult sugya, but we did get to a section that was dealing with the idea of binyanav, and then there was an undoing of the binyanav. And I said, I had a very difficult time trying to explain how to undo a binyanav. I'm 48 years old. I get it. But I don't see how most 14-year-olds would understand what this is talking about. So I said to him, you know what? I'm curious how your teacher teaches it in school. And he came back today and he said he still didn't understand it. No one in his class understood it. I'm not blaming the teacher. But at the age of 14, can a student really understand some of these logical constructs that are established in the Talmud? These are important ideas and they're deep ideas and they're very, very interesting. But for a 14-year-old, it may be just gibberish. Here's a fourth point. And in explaining this point, I'm going to take a slight departure and discuss something that Malcolm Gladwell spoke about in his book, Outliers. Over there, he had a section about Canadian youth hockey. He says that he noticed a strange fact, and it's true, that so many of the best Canadian hockey players were born in the months of January, February, and March. Ultimately, by going through and following the trail, he figures out that because Canadian hockey is divided up in a year from January to December, when the kids are young, say six or seven years old, and they join a youth hockey league, Obviously, the kids born in January will tend to be slightly bigger than the kids born in December. They're only six or seven years old. And because they're bigger and more physically developed, they will naturally be better players. Which means that since they're better players, the coaches give them extra attention. And when they're asked for their best players for a higher level of coaching or to go to a stronger league, they will naturally choose the kids who are, by accident of birth, better players. Those kids get more attention, and they do become the best players. The poor kid, who may have the exact same amount of talent as the kid born in January, but was born in December, because of the fact that he's younger, ends up being seen as a lesser player. No one's doing it on purpose, but it's the consequence of dividing everybody by year. So an important conclusion that emerges from Gladwell's reporting and analysis about youth hockey in Canada is that we're possibly losing the talents of a huge pool of players who are being disregarded because they seemed not to be as good, whereas in fact they were just younger. And this same problem repeats itself in many other areas. Of course, a student who is 11 months older in first grade than somebody else is more likely to be intellectually more capable than someone born later in the year. Of course, that kid born in January in first grade is more likely to rise to the top of the class, not because of his gifts, but because of his age. 
And that means that he will be seen as a stronger student, will generally get extra attention, will be given enrichment courses, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's wonderful for that kid, but it means we're squandering the talents of all of those kids who are just as smart or smarter, but who happen to be born later in the year. So what's the solution to avoid this? Perhaps instead of dividing classes up by last name, divide up by month. Think of a school, for example, with three first grades. And often they'll be divided randomly or perhaps alphabetically. Everyone with last names starting with the letters A to G will be in one class, H to M in the second class, N to Z in the third class, or something like that. What if instead they were divided by birth month? January to April is in class one, May to August in class two, September to December in class three. That way, kids who are closer in age are competing against each other, meaning that a strong November-born child isn't unfairly competing with an equally strong February-born child. By the time they're out of elementary school, when the differences in age are less relevant, we will have been pushing stronger kids in all groups instead of just older kids. That way, more kids get an opportunity to be strong kids and to get those enrichments and to get that extra attention. I think the same idea might apply to religious studies. I used to think that everybody who's good at Gemara is also good at other Jewish studies. And anybody who's good at other Jewish studies is likely to be good at Gemara. And certainly in terms of textual study, being good at one means you're probably going to be good at the other from a textual study standpoint. But is it really necessarily true that creativity that can be successful in other areas, Tanakh, Midrash, philosophy to name three, does that really require immersion in Gemara at the high school level? Perhaps on some level it does. But on the other hand, an overemphasis on Gemara might be doing a disservice to those kids who could succeed in these other areas. I think experience has shown that there are some kids who just are not so good at Gemara but who can thrive in other areas. By treating everything other than Talmud as the other stuff, we're writing off a big portion of our students, just as students born in November are being written out of youth hockey in Canada. I know a lot of students who are very bright, but never got the hang of Gemara. The result? They often don't take any Jewish learning seriously because the schools treated them as unserious Torah learners. Would it not have been good if their high schools had instead have provided shiurim classes that were just as serious as the Gemara shiurim, but were tailored to kids who were not as good at Gemara. Not now the lower-level shiurim, equally high-level shiurim, but perhaps in areas of creativity, perhaps in areas of philosophy, perhaps in areas of textual analysis without requiring immersion in Aramaic. Shiurim that were not treated as the second-class shiurim. If schools did this, they would give students, first of all, a solid Jewish education where they could potentially excel, and second, they'll give them the feeling that Torah is for them too, even though they're not expert or even good at learning Gemara. It seems to me that sometimes, by pushing Gemara so much and treating Gemara like it is the essence of learning Torah to the degree that nothing else really is as important— By doing this, it's the functional equivalent of writing off students who could be good at other areas, but since they're not good at Gemara, we treat them like they're not good at anything. It's like being born in December in Canadian youth hockey. In some ways, we may be thereby squandering the talents of potentially strong Jewish students 
by pretending that their other talents don't exist. I don't mean they're not going to learn Gemara. It could very well be that if they take themselves seriously as Jewish learners, then after high school, they'll go to yeshiva, and maybe there they will pick up Gemara, which will supplement that which they already learned, and then perhaps later on, they'll become expert at Gemara too. But they've already written themselves off as bad learners. Which leads to the last point I want to make, which is what message are we presenting our children when, if they're not naturally talented at Gemara, we effectively tell them they're always going to be second-class Jews? No one says this outright, but is this what's being communicated? I was recently contacted by the mother of a 12th grader in the United States. This 12th grader is looking at yeshivot in Israel for next year. I know independently that this student is very, very smart. However, he doesn't like Gemara. I don't know if it's because it wasn't taught properly. I don't know if he just never got the hang of it, but he does not like Gemara. So he's looking for a yeshiva that de-emphasizes Gemara. But very often, those are the yeshivot that because of the culture where Gemara is everything, those yeshivot are not as serious. Which means, if he goes to a yeshiva that de-emphasizes Gemara, he's going to likely be with less serious students, rather than with students who are equally serious but who just don't like Gemara. That's what ends up happening. These are students who will see themselves as lesser Jews. These are students who will see themselves as not being potentially Tabarei Chachamim. And this way we unintentionally, but inevitably, continue a class system that has been set up. That's a start to this discussion, and I don't have the answers, because everything I said at the beginning about how important Gemara is, is still absolutely true. But we have to think about these issues in a direct way. Are we writing off all these students unnecessarily? Are we teaching students a medium amount of Gemara instead of either immersion or not teaching it at all, and thereby teaching them to hate it? Are we teaching students when they're too young? Again, thereby teaching them that they hate Gemara, not giving it a chance later on. I don't know. I'm just presenting a question. I'm opening a discussion that I hope will continue over the next few podcasts. If we're not going to give Gemara the time it needs, we're largely teaching kids that it's something they hate. And if we do give it the time it deserves, and some kids still don't do well with it, despite being intelligent, we're neglecting areas that these kids could excel in, and we're stealing their possible portion in Torah from them, as well as letting them know that they'll always be second-class Jews. If Torah learning is the most important mitzvah, and Torah learning equals Gemara, and they aren't good at Gemara, what are we telling them? And on the other hand, there are very good reasons why Gemara should be the centerpiece of Jewish education. Perhaps there are creative solutions that we haven't thought of yet. That's the point of this podcast. Let's get a discussion going. Maybe you have an idea or something to add to the discussion. So please continue the conversation. Let me know what you think. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. That's scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Let's try and find some solutions. So thank you for joining me. Let's continue the conversation. There are so many podcasts out there nowadays, so I'm very, very grateful that you chose to listen to mine, The Orthodox Conundrum. Please share this with anyone you think would be interested. Please go and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please especially rate us and review us on iTunes. It really helps us a lot. I'm Scott Kahn on the Orthodox Conundrum. This is JewishCoffeeHouse.com.